Ellen. And I'm Sam. And we're just here to cause chaos. No one's going to know that we changed it. <laughs> but we're going to know and it's going to make me feel better. I'm glad. That's what I'm here for. Well, it's been an interesting week. Oh, yes. Tell me about it. I don't know. I keep having to go to work, Sam. <laughs> I have to go to a corporate job. I mean, at I... least it's a corporate job that has the set of Lord of the Rings, i.e. <laughs> a replica of Bilbo's house in the Shire as one of its conference rooms, but still. I've mentioned that your workplace is fake, right? No, it's real. No, I've but it's there. fake. But it's fake. And the fact that the someone is building. actively leaving my workplace to come to your workplace is hilarious also. <laughs> because while it is my second week at my job, it is someone else's last week because they are leaving my Southern California like lovely job to go work at Ellen's company in Wisconsin. Yeah. See, I have two goals while living up here in Wisconsin. One, obviously, take over the Upper Peninsula from Michigan. They've had it too good for too long. And two, <laughs> convince all the people in your office to come work at my office. Ooh, that's going to be a tough sell based on the fact that I work in academia now. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you go when corporate life seems scary. And so you were like, what about if I don't? <laughs> but this is corporate life that has a different gingerbread house conference room. Yeah, but I can wear clothes that make me look like an early 2000s indie rom-com coming-of-age film art teacher every day to work. I mean, true, but our dress code is officially, if there's visitors, wear clothes. <laughs> Jackie told me today that the only thing that would make me more look more like a coming-of-age film art teacher would be if I had like a poorly concealed tattoo. Yes. <laughs> Or you could put your hair up with some pencils. That's your thing. My hair won't stay up like that. It's too curly. I got more of a Miss Frizzle look going. Oh, speaking of, I don't know, academia, talking, we figured out why my episodes are so much longer. <laughs> As the researcher that I am, I studied this issue and found that I'm an asshole. <laughs> It's That's really the issue. Sam can't stay on topic <laughs> ever. So when Ellen's the one talking, I whenever I interrupt her, I'm going off topic and like taking us down some other path. <laughs> and whenever Ellen interrupts me, she is stating a fact that is probably in my notes in like another page. And so I shut her down very quickly. I know but... a lot of things. <laughs> but when I interrupt her with some like random nonsense, we go off on it. <laughs> And that is me and Ellen in a nutshell. Yeah, maybe this time I should come up with random topics to take us down. Honestly, work? it would be great except for the fact that we might not get back to the story then. Oh god. Because <laughs> you know I don't have self-control. Neither of us will be able to focus. Alright, well, what is the terrifying story you have for me today? Why are you always so scared of what I'm doing? Because it's always scary. Okay, well, I am now a researcher and I had some serious research envy and decided that it was time for me to do Marie Curie. Ah, oh, finally. Because <laughs> you know what? I went into a clean room today and a clean room is pretty much a place where there's like a 2% chance you might get touched with a really bad chemical. And therefore they make you put on like these special coveralls, two sets of gloves, a hood. Like, you know, when you see people in like movies in like quarantine zones, yeah. that's those like all white outfits. That's what I have to wear in the clean room. <laughs> and so I'm like, I wear this because there's like a 2% chance I might accidentally touch hydrochloric acid. And Marie Curie carried radium in her pocket. Yeah, you don't want to end up like Marie Curie. So, I here saw we are. the place where she was born. It's in, like, Warsaw, Poland. Yes, it is. Yeah, and like the rest of Warsaw, Poland, it was depressing. Don't go there. Yeah, Poland's one of those places that, like, I know some quantity of my family's probably from there, and there's a lot of, like, Jewish history, and I probably should go at some point in my life, but it's not 
high on my list. Listen, there may you may have some family history there, but there's a reason they left. <laughs> Persecution. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe that. I was thinking more just Poland. Fair. <laughs> Honestly, now that I work in cancer research, there's a non-zero chance I could end up at like a talk at the Curie Institute or something someday. So maybe that's why I'll end up in Poland. Mm. Okay, okay, that's a worthwhile goal. Yeah. Conference at the Curie Institute is the only reason I will go to Poland. That's my official statement. Cool. Should I actually start talking about her? Yeah, yeah. Where was she born? And if the answer's not Warsaw, Poland, I will revolt. <laughs> if the answer's not Warsaw, Poland, you'll just edit it out of the episode. <laughs> but Marie Sklodowski was born in Warsaw, Poland. In Tech, no- yeah. On November 7th, 1867. <laughs> She was the daughter of two secondary school teachers who had names that were so Polish. Their names were Bronislawa and Woladislaw. Oh, I'm not even going to try to repeat that. I am not saying it again. That is the only time you're hearing her father's name. Cool, cool. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, her mom was the headmistress of a very prestigious girls boarding school. And she was the youngest of their five children. Her four siblings were Zofia, Joseph. These are Z's, not S's, by the way. Of course, obviously. Um, Ronislawa and Helena. <sighs> so, name more Eastern European names, I dare you. <laughs> yeah, no wonder it took Poland so long to get their own country. <laughs> took this long to say their names. <laughs> Her family did have very strong ties to the Polish national uprising. And because of this, both sides of her family lost all their land and money to the Russian Empire. And so all the children had to struggle to get ahead in their early lives. Mm. The Russian government removed laboratory instruction from schools. And so their father started bringing home experiments to teach to his kids. And her father was eventually fired from the school where he taught because of his pol- pro-Polish tendencies. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, who hasn't lost something due to the Russian government? Fair. Especially this is like the Russian Empire, not e- like this is pre-Soviets. Like, Tsar was still going. Like, oh, that's, that's the Russians we're talking about. Yeah. When I was little, my dad used to bring home like this dry ice, and then we would like put water on it, and then it would do the bubbly thing, and we were like, "Ooh, witchcraft!" And then my that dad would witchcraft. try to explain science, and we would just say witchcraft. I agree, it's witchcraft. It's definitely witchcraft. I can also see your dad like really wanted you guys to understand what he was doing. Yeah, and there was also a lot of, don't touch it, it's cold, and then we would of course try to poke it. Today, when I was in my clean room training, there was an emergency shower right next to the liquid nitrogen like dispenser. And so someone made a joke being like, ah, don't shower there. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that'd be a cold shower. And everyone laughed. and I was really proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I'm funny. I have a comedy podcast. Of of course. Okay. Back to what I was saying. So, yeah, her father lost his job because he was pro-Polish. And so the family started taking in borders to help make ends meet. However, her oldest sister, Zofia, died of typhus that she caught from a border in 1875. Oof, can't catch a break. Nope. And then three years later in 1878, her mom died of tuberculosis. Oh. Maria was only 10. Yeah, consumption. Consumption. A lot of it going around. But pretty much this experience led to Maria giving up her mother's Catholic faith in favor of her father's atheism. So. This is where she kind of broke with religion at 10. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it's been a rough couple of years. Mm -hmm. But overall, she received a very basic education at the local school and then got some scientific training from her father at home. And eventually she graduated from high school at the age of 15 at the very top of her class. What? Yeah, she was smart. I mean, she's Marie Curie. I mean, I'm impressed. I'm just thinking about what I was doing when I was 15. I mean, not that. I was like building sets for plays and robots and stuff. So probably if I was in like a 1800s high school, I probably would have graduated too. So 
I was playing basketball badly. Good uh, times. I built a lot of robots when I was like 15. There's a reason I'm an engineer. Although okay. I am also an engineer. <sighs> I know. It's fair whenever I say that. <laughs> oh, it'll never not be funny. It just hurts me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Moving on from that. In her youth, she kind of got involved with some revolutionaries in Poland. At the time, it was illegal for women to get a uh, high education. And so she went to study at a clandestine university called the Flying University. The university constantly changed locations to avoid authorities, and it taught pro-Polish ideals and encouraged women to study. Because, and she went there, and her and her older sister, Bronislawa, both went there because they were unable to get into any other college in Poland because the Russian Empire sucked. But I need you to know, this is so cool. Right? <laughs> the Flying <laughs> University is so cool. She taught there for a little while later in life, and I'm like, damn, girl. Yeah, she felt very unsafe in the Russian Empire. So I wonder I, why. Yeah, so she left Russian-controlled Warsaw for Austrian-occupied Krakow at a certain point, and I'm lived there though. as a governess for- it went fine. Oh, okay. She lived there as a governess for like a hot minute and a tutor. She was living there for a couple years as a governess and tutor to support her sister who had gone to Paris to study and like she had made a deal with her sister that she would go first and Marie would stay in Poland and like make some money and help her out. And then after her sister got her medical degree, Marie would come out too and her sister would help her out and it was like going to be like a tit for tat type thing. That's nice. I'm yeah. sure it didn't work out like that from the Actually, oh, it went it? pretty. It went pretty well. It's just like while she was working as a governess, she fell in love with a member of the family and like it was real cute. But then the family she was working for was pretty wealthy and they weren't okay with with like their son marrying this very like poor, non-landed, uh, non-titled woman. Classism. So, yeah. And the guy like wasn't showing confident enough to be like screwed his family. So she uh. had she ended up going back to Warsaw to be with her dad after that and like worked in a laboratory there for a little while with her brother and like continued working until she was able to move to Paris with her sister in 1891 but like early mm -hmm. heartbreak you know and the guy who left her or the guy who like would marry her because his family said no to his dying day said that like one of his biggest regrets was the fact that he didn't marry Marie Curie <laughs> <laughs> but I think this this teaches a valuable lesson. When men fail you, there's always science. Yes, science will always have your back. <laughs> so, but now we're in 1891. She's 24 years old and she moves to Paris and moves in with her sister, Branislava, and the man she'd recently married. And she gets to study at the Sorbonne. Ooh. Right? It's fancy. And during that time, she receives her licensure in physics and mathematical sciences. Nice. And like, oh god, she was a physics major though. I know. <laughs> We're gonna let it be because she's like Marie Curie, but I have opinions on physics majors. Yeah, yeah, we'll let it slide this time. <laughs> oh. I didn't used to have opinions on physics majors before that one date. Oh, I just always had opinions on physics majors. Uh, I took uh, one physics class and was like, anyone who likes this is messed up. Marcus was a physics major when I met him. Yeah, but luckily he reformed himself. <laughs> so, yeah, she lived with her sister for a little while when she first moved to Paris, but wanted to, like, live a little closer to the campus. And also, I think she felt weird living with, like, her sister and her new husband. So yeah, I guess. She ended up moving into, like, kind of apartment-y, townhouse-y thing, much closer to campus. And she was broke so this place sucked in the winter she had to wear all of her clothes at once to keep warm and this was preferable to living with her sister and her husband i think her sister and her husband lived like really far away from campus okay but in 1894 she met pierre curry which <gasps> you might yeah his last name is curry exactly he was a <laughs> professor of physics Gross. and yeah, but you know, she studied physics, so I guess she was into that. <laughs> Fine. And a year later, they got married on July 26, 1985. Yay, love! Yay, love. 
At first, she didn't accept his proposal because she had planned to move back to Poland after she finished her studies. But Pierre, because we apparently have like a theme of standable husbands on this show, Pierre offered to move to Poland with her, even if all he could do there was like be a French teacher because he didn't speak Polish. Aww. He was like, I will give up my position as a physics professor, which is like a very prestigious position at the Sorbonne, and go move to Poland with you if that's what you want. Aww. I know. And in the summer before they got married, she went back to Poland for a little while. And realized that it sucked? Pretty much. She (laughs) found out the academics are sexist. Really? Yeah. We're just finding that out. Yeah, they still are. She wasn't allowed to go to university in Poland, and she's surprised by this? I don't know why she was surprised, honestly. But yeah, she went back to Poland in in 1894 and was denied a position at the university in Krakow Mm -hmm. because she was a woman. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So she wrote a bunch of letters with Pierre and Pierre was like, yeah, that sucks. And he eventually convinced her to come back to France and finish her PhD there. Good. Oh, and this is a fun one. She didn't want to wear a white dress on her wedding day, so she wore a dark blue outfit instead. And that later would become her like typical lab outfit that like any picture you see of Mary Curie she's always in this like dark dark blue lab uniform and it's what she wore to her wedding (laughs) she had a theme and she committed (laughs) like that's cartoon character level like you know how cartoon characters always wear the same outfit (laughs) oh god you're right (laughs) but the couple enjoyed going on long bike rides together and traveling all over the world and they were really close and cute and i i stand them oh and they eventually had two daughters, Irene in 1897 and Eve in 1904. She eventually succeeded her husband as the head of the physics lab at the Sorbonne and gained a doctorate in physics in 1903. Wow. Which you will notice that year is between her two children's births, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, what? Wow. And the early days of their research life was hard fam like both her and her husband had to teach multiple classes to make ends meet on top of their research and they ended up working in a shed next to the university because the university didn't technically fund their research they got like a bunch of funding from like outside companies a lot of miners like mining companies and some governments and metal companies subsidized them but Technically, they weren't like funded by these universities, so they they did their work out of a shed. And remember, they're working on early stage radioactive material in the shed that was poorly ventilated, not waterproof. She called the space a hot house in the summer, said it was drafty in the winter. The glass roof did not keep rain out. And at one point, a very famous German chemist came to visit them and called it a cross between a potato shed and a stable. He said he thought that it was a practical joke until he saw the chemistry instruments on a table. (laughs) The German scientist walking in like, you live like this? Yeah. (laughs) But they were both spurred on by the discovery of radioactivity by Henry Becquerel in 1896. And... Mary Carey was actually the person who termed, who coined the term radioactive. What? I didn't know that. Right? She's so impressive. <laughs> the couple together discovered two new elements. What? Right? The first was polonium, which was named after Poland, where Marie was born, obviously. Hat. Marie, why does she such a She really Poland. likes Poland. Like, I can't explain it, but like, she loved Poland her entire life. Like, she does so much for Poland. Ugh. Polish she, simp. She has dual citizenship at this point with France, and she still decides to name her first element polonium. So doesn't francium already have an element? Francium actually was discovered later at the Curie Institute hey! by another researcher. <laughs> <laughs> but the second element they discovered was radium. Hey! But to answer your question, at the time polonium was discovered, there was no francium yet. (sighs) All right, moving on. Yeah. Unfortunately, Pierre died in 1906 in a streetcar accident. No! I know, right? Why do the standable husbands keep dying? I don't know. 
Part of me is like sad for him, but also knows that if he had lived much longer, he probably would have also realized how much radiation he had ingested over the last like however many years. Yeah, I guess streetcar crash. Yeah, that's at least a quick death. Yeah. Also, streetcar accident. What are yeah. the odds? <laughs> right? But also it was 1906 and their youngest child was born in 1904 and that makes me sad. Aww. After his death, though, Marie took his place as a professor of general physics in the Faculty of Sciences, which she was the very first woman to ever hold this position. Nice. Yeah. And like being a full fledged professor at that time was like not a thing women could do. So yeah, she's a full fledged professor, a single mother. I'm impressed. Yeah. A few years later in 1914, she founded and was appointed the director of the Curie Laboratory in the Radium Institute of the University of Paris. Ooh. Right? It's named after her. And like the entire institute is named after the element she discovered. I know. That's <laughs> awesome. In her research, Marie was able to develop a method to separate out radium from radioactive residues in a sufficient quantity to study and characterize. So pretty much she was able to figure out how to like get enough radium by itself to figure out what it does. Wow. Right? And so she was able to start using it in therapeutic methods and the first radiation treatments for disease were created by her. Wow. Like, right? uh, like, like for cancer or? Yeah. Oh my God. She spearheaded the first studies of using radioactive isotropes to treat neoplasms, which is like abnormal tissue growth um, and like small tumors and things like that. I'm just amazed that they like could make that connection. She could. She did yeah. it. Like just, she's like this. This rock kills stuff. Let's put it next to the cancer. <laughs> but then also she was like, yeah, but it's fine if I carry it around. Yeah, clearly there's some like neural dissonance there. <laughs> she invented the technique for isolating radioactive isotopes, though, which I know might not mean a lot because wow. that's like a lot of science words, but it's a big deal. <laughs> no, that is impressive. That's how they make like nuclear power. Yeah. And bombs. Yeah, ideas that she had come up with would eventually go into the atom bomb, but she didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, that's not her fault. Yeah, not her fault. She <laughs> is curing cancer. Yeah, it's Oppenheimer's fault. Mm -hmm. So in 1920, she founded the first Curie Institute in Paris. That same year, the French government finally started to pay her. Good! <laughs> It, it was just in honor of the 25th anniversary of her invention of radium. They finally gave her like a yearly salary from the French government. Oh my god. <laughs> she was at least being paid by the university, right? Like yeah. they didn't just name the university an was institute after her. her and not pay her. Yeah. No, after she like started discovering elements, the university started like funding her research. They're like, fine if she's <laughs> if she's learning about new types of matter. Yeah. Uh, she probably got to leave the shed finally. Good. <laughs> I didn't see any references to the shed after her husband died, so I think maybe that was when it ended. Let Marie out of the shed. She also founded a second Curie Institute in Warsaw in 1932. Because oh, she really liked Poland. Yep, still a simp for Poland. <laughs> yeah. God, I can't imagine simping for Poland. I know. Like, sorry if we have any Polish listeners, except for I doubt it, because I don't think anyone but our families really listen to this, but... Oof. <laughs> well, on the map of people it says listen to, there's no one in Poland, but there is that one dot in Brussels that neither of us have been able to explain. Well, you know what? We do put this on the internet for anyone to consume. Yeah, but Like, I don't think a lot of people consume it, but... Uh, yeah, but who is our Brussels listener? If you are the Brussels listener, please email us. We want to be your friend. Yes, if you are our Brussels listener, email us at, at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com. We are just curious. <laughs> <laughs> and we are thankful that you're not our moms. <laughs> we need someone under that our moms to listen to this. What else did Marie Curry do? So much. But yeah, both Curie Institutes are to this day major hospitals and active medical research institutions. Wow. The Paris Curie Institute was where her daughter would later discover artificial radioactivity and where Marguerite Perry 
would discover francium, which I know you already got me to say, but hey. it was in my notes here, so I'm saying it again. Wait, I didn't know her daughter was also, like, a scientist. That's awesome! Yeah, uh, I'm mean, gonna talk about this later, but her daughter also won Nobel Prizes. We love it. We stand Why? it. We need to have her on the list. <laughs> yeah, oh, my next bullet point, actually, is that she worked alongside her daughter, during Irene, the older one, during World War I to find ways to use radium to alleviate the suffering of soldiers. She convinced the French government to make her the director of the Red Cross Radiology Services and then got her rich friends to donate money for her research. <laughs> and by doing this, she was able to develop a mobile, a mobile X-ray machine to assist field doctors on the battlefields. She even learned to drive and operate a war ambulance so she could operate the machine herself on the front lines and did this most famously during the Battle of the Marne. That's awesome. Yeah. You created a portable X-ray machine? Yeah, it in was the called forties. Yeah, no, not the forties. This is World War One. In the teens, what? Yeah. <laughs> By the end of the war, there were twenty petite curies, which is what they called the machines. I love. And it. they were being used all over the war effort. Why and the reason didn't that she... name stick? I don't know. But the reason she operated them herself was because, like, a lot of the field doctors were skeptical of the machine and were like, "We do things the old way. We don't need your fancy fancy like." new age fangled whatever and so Oof. she was like i'll show you and she went into the war zone did it herself and then all the doctors were like fine this works we'll use it <laughs> yeah, the history of medicine is wild right <laughs> you could do so much stuff back then and like no one really had to tell you you could <laughs> like if i touch a cell i have to go through like two weeks of training <laughs> Meanwhile, they're just cutting off body parts left and right. Meanwhile, this woman's just like driving onto a battlefield with a portable x-ray machine. God. During this time, she also invented a hollow needle that emitted what would later be identified as radon to sterilize wounds, which like isn't how we sterilize wounds nowadays, but is a really cool idea. Yeah. Might have given one or two people like radiation poisoning, but like it also probably worked a good bit at the time. <laughs> At the time, she had one gram of radium as, like, her research, and, like, radium's real expensive to find and make and all that kind of stuff, but she donated her one gram of radium to the war effort because they needed it to, like, run the Petite Curies. Oh. She even tried to donate her Nobel Prizes to the war effort because they were made of gold, but the French National Bank rejected them because they were her Nobel Prizes. Yeah. She did, however, donate her prize money that she won from the Nobel Prizes in the form of war bonds instead. Oh my god. Yeah, she she was real patriotic during World War One. Yeah. She's such a simp for countries. I don't know. This woman just like really liked being behind a flag, I guess. <laughs> and then now we're just gonna get into like things she did. In 1929, which I would just like to point out before I tell you the rest of this fact, is like right about the beginning of the Great Depression. Oh yeah. But, Remember that. Yeah. President Herbert Hoover gave her $50,000 to develop a radioactive lab in her native city of Warsaw as part of the American Friends of Science program. Oh, that's nice. To be fair, he didn't know the Great Depression was going to happen. <laughs> I know, I just like blaming Herbert Hoover for things. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> who doesn't? Fair. I, just, I felt the need to like point that out, that that was like the timing. There's a reason that all the homeless camps were called Hoovervilles. Also, the next bullet point has a lot of French words in it, so I'm putting it off at the moment. Okay. <laughs> but I guess it's time. You can do it. Say those French words. Allons-y. Okay. She was a member of the Council du Physique, Physique Sauve. Sure. No, no one crushed me on that. From 1911 <laughs> until her death, and... Since 1922, she had been a member of the Committee of Intellectual Cooperations of the League of Nations. Impressive. She's very impressive. She wrote so many papers, like, so many research papers. I have serious research envy of this woman. <laughs> that, like, <laughs> writing research papers is really hard. I'm really <laughs> impressed with her. But she understood the importance of publishing quickly before someone else could take the credit. Like, this was the time period where it was, like, three days between various people discovering things. And, like, the guy who discovered radioactivity, if he hadn't published one, like, when he published someone else, like, 
discovered it like a week later and like stuff like that was happening a lot during this time and so she was like everything i find i publish immediately yeah and i'm sure as a woman she had to be extra careful because if like anyone did anything remotely at the same time i'm sure they would have just chosen the guy over her yeah and it would have been so easy for her husband to just be like these are my accomplishments and he didn't he like shared all of the credit with her and we just we stand him we stand pierre curry we stand but because pierre gave her her correct amount of credit on everything they did together she was the first woman to win a nobel prize nice she shared her first Nobel Prize in physics with her husband in 1903 for their study of spontaneous radiation. They actually got half the prize between the two of them because they shared the prize with the discoverer of radiation, Henry Becquero. But still, that's, yeah, that's, that's still a Nobel counts. Prize. Yeah, that was her first Nobel Prize in 1903. She, and you might notice that I said that was a Nobel Prize in physics. She won a second Nobel Prize in chemistry <gasps> in 1911. subject. Yeah. So in 1911, she won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for her work in radioactivity and the discovery of the new elements that she found. She was the first person to win two Nobel Prizes. She's the only woman to have ever won two Nobel Prizes. And she is also the only person to have ever won a Nobel Prize in two different fields. And then just a little bit about the fact that the Curie family has five Nobel Prizes between them. <laughs> her daughter, Irene, who was only six when she won her first Nobel Prize. Wait, what? Who, yeah. Are we, we going to elaborate on that or no? Just... Well, no. No, she was six when Marie won her first Nobel Prize. Oh, okay. I just, I wanted to give some context of like what she was growing up around. I thought the six-year-old won a Nobel Prize. I would have elaborated on that. <laughs> But yeah, Irene grew up to then win her own Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1935. She shared it with her husband for discovering artificial radioactivity, which she did at the Curie Institute. Of course. Yeah. And then Marie's son-in-law, Eve's husband, so like the other daughter's husband, Henry LeBouis, accepted a Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of UNICEF in 1965. Wow. Yeah. And so altogether, the Curie, like nuclear family had five Nobel Prizes. You go, so, Curries. Yeah, we can all just be a little jealous of that. Mm -hmm. Also, President Harding gave her a gram of radium in recognition to her service in science as part of some like women in science thing that he was doing at the time. Which cool. I just think is funny. I don't know why two different presidents like gave her presents, but <laughs> she had more honors and awards than and honorary degrees and books about her and all that kind of stuff that I am willing to list. No, that's fair. I'm sure so, it's plenty. Yeah, pretty much any school worth the damn gave her an honorary degree or <laughs> and like she won every award. And if you go to a library auto like a library biography section, there's like a shelf of Mary Carey books. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying all that. <laughs> and now we have reached, unfortunately, the end of her life. She died on July 4th, 1934, at the age of 66. She developed a plastic anemia from her constant exposure to radioactive materials in her research. Yeah. The long-term exposure to, radio to radiation had severely damaged her bone marrow. Oh, I'm sure it did. For most of her research life, she had carried around test tubes with radioactive isotopes in her pocket. So, like, this is kind of inevitable. They didn't know, but, like, nowadays, like, I told you, I have to put on a full bunny suit to, like, work with hydrochloric acid, so. Yeah. We are a little more careful now, at least. But she really... She was like, we can use this to kill cancer. And then she put it back in her pocket. Yeah. In her defense, later studies of her body in 1995 led to the belief that her exposure to radium didn't actually kill her. What? Since, well, radium is only harmful when ingested. So what did kill her? So more modern scientists say that her death was blamed on her exposure to the unfiltered radiation from the x-rays in the field hospitals from world war one oh yeah that'll do it yeah so you know how like when you get an x-ray they make you put on like a lead vest and the technician goes in like the next room behind like a 
steel wall. Yeah, yeah, the technician runs away. Yeah, and you're like, this doesn't feel safe. <laughs> well, they didn't used to do that. And Marie Curie was a technician. <laughs> Maybe so. the old school doctors were onto something. <laughs> so pretty much they think that might have actually been it and not like carrying around radium in her pocket. But you know what? That can't have helped. Yeah. <laughs> In 1995, the reason her body was studied again was because her and her husband's bodies were transferred to the Paris Pantheon, which is a very high honor, I found out. And she was the first woman to be interred there because of her own achievements. Because of how much radiation she was exposed to, her papers are continued to this day dangerous to handle. (laughs) Even her cookbooks are radioactive. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All of her research papers are and like original writings are kept in lead lined boxes oh. and anyone who wants to look through them has to wear special equipment and like make an appointment. <laughs> and that is the life of Marie Curie. She was really cool. And she I was... have a quote wall. Okay, but I just can't stop thinking about the fact that France just chooses people to bury in a special place 60 yeah. years after they die. I wanted to look at more information about that, but I do work a full-time job now, so I didn't. Cool. Uh, what the Paris Pantheon is might honestly be my next hyperfixation, though, because I am curious. Is it like the catacombs? I think maybe. We'll find out. I'm going to leave that up for mystery for the moment. What is up with France and dead bodies? Okay, sorry. Please say some quotes before I, I keep thinking the catacombs once. It. I didn't enjoy it. I, well, I don't like looking at skulls, apparently. That's on you, man. My lack of enjoyment or the fact that I went? No, the, your lack of enjoyment. Oh. Well, do you like looking at dead things? Depends on how dead. Like, very dead? Yeah, that's kind of cool. Freshly dead? That's a hard no. Really? I'd almost rather look at something freshly dead. No. But I also have done cadaver work in animal labs before, so like... Although, my hyperfixation this week is about the dead. Okay, do you want me to do my quote wall so it's your turn? Yes, kind of. Okay, quote wall. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Amazing. That's like a really inspirational one. I really like that one. She also said, be less curious about people and more curious about ideas. I'm telling you, when men fail you, there's always science. Yeah. This woman is the definition of when men fail you, there's always science. (laughs) She also said, one never notices what has been done. One can only see what remains to be done. And then she said, I was taught that the way of progress was neither swift nor easy, which honestly should be written on the wall of my research lab. (laughs) She said, there are sadistic scientists who hurry to hunt down errors instead of establishing truth. Which is a sick burn if you knew how like peer reviewed research papers worked. (laughs) And then she also said, I have frequently been questioned, especially by women, of how I can rec- reconcile family life with a scientific career. Well, it has not been easy. <laughs> which makes me think that she was sassy, which, like, makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> and that is Marie Curie's quote wall. I love it. I have so much research envy of this woman. What an icon. Also, like, part of me always wishes that I lived in a time period where, like, I could be discovering new stuff, like, you know, because, like, there's not, it feels, sometimes in, like, research, it feels like there's not a lot of new stuff to discover nowadays, and, like, right and left people were just discovering stuff in, like, the late 1800s. There's still stuff to discover. They didn't think there was anything left to discover back then, either. And then there was more. Maybe. Maybe I'll discover something. Yeah. (sighs) Find those gravity waves or whatever. Someone's doing that. Someone, didn't someone just win a Nobel Prize for that like a couple years ago? Yeah, but they're not done. Okay. There's more of them. All right. Your turn. So, this week I needed a hyperfixation. 
And I thought, you know what's cool? Vampires. What did you do? <laughs> Why am I terrified? <laughs> you will not make me watch Twilight again. <laughs> Ellen and our other roommate made me watch Twilight during the pandemic. Like, and it all was of them. Great. <laughs> we watched all the Twilights within the course of like a week. Like, it honestly was probably like four days, but. <laughs> <laughs> watched all the Twilight. Those movies are terrible, and I mean they were that so in bad. The most affectionate way possible. <laughs> I had never seen them before, <laughs> and you know what? I don't think my life would have been like vastly changed if I had never seen them. <laughs> no, you needed to see these. But at least now, when I like <laughs> complain about Twilight, I'm complaining about something. Like it's something I've experienced. <laughs> but think about all the memes you now understand. Julie sends us a lot of Twilight memes. And they're all bangers. <sighs> God, what about vampires, Ellen? So I thought we would go over some nice vampire history, you know? Oh, okay. This isn't Twilight related. I can <laughs> accept this. Not Twilight related. <laughs> I don't know why I really thought it was going to be Twilight related. I feel like now despite me, the next type of fixation is going to be Twilight related. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm talking. So, the main quality of vampires is that they survive by, you know, eating, drinking blood from people. Or sometimes some other kind of life force, like, you know, psychic chakras or whatever. But it's usually blood, because that's, you know, darker. In Twilight, they drink animal blood. <laughs> <laughs> animal blood is a type of blood. I'm just- I'm putting that out there. <laughs> you made me watch Twilight. I'm gonna put Twilight facts in here. And there's a couple different classic vampire characteristics. Usually they have- there's an elaborate ritual to be turned into one, which can be as simple as- well, apparently in Slavic and Chinese traditions, they were just like, yeah, any corpse that's been jumped over by an animal could be a vampire. What? Yeah, that was a thing. Wait, Chinese and Slavic, did they develop those separately? They must have, I doubt they were talking. How did two different cultures, like, that That always blows my mind when two different cultures have, like, similar mythology or, like, mythical characters or things like that, because I'm like, that almost makes me think that it might be, like, kind of real. Because, <laughs> like, if two different areas were able to, like, well, separately come up with it. every culture as a kind of vampire. Doesn't that mean that there's probably vampires? There's probably vampires. Like, if every culture separately thought of the same thing, like, people aren't that creative. <laughs> that makes me think that there are vampires if every culture has their own kind. So, the same Persians had a kind of blood-drinking demon. Ancient same Babylon. Way that there's probably some kind of Bigfoot because, like, so many different cultures have like a Yeti character. Oh, Bigfoot's definitely real. <laughs> Ancient Babylonian and Assyrian had tales of the mythical Lilithu, which they think eventually turned into Lilith, you know, the first demon. So, Lilithu was also a demon and was depicted as subsiding on the blood of babies. So, that's fun. That's some changeling stuff right there. Yeah. There were estuaries, which were female shape-shifting, blood-drinking demons that roamed the night of seeking victims. What about, like, ancient Greek and Puse? It had, like, one cow foot, and they were always women, and they sucked blood. It's a time. Yeah, and Puse was the daughter of the goddess Hecate. Mm -hmm. And she was depicted as a demonic, bronze-footed creature. And, of course, she feasted on blood by transforming into a young woman, seducing men. And when they slept, she drank their blood. That sounds right. Yeah. No shame. And Percy yeah. Jackson, they're cheerleaders. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lamia preyed on young children in their beds at night. So I'm sure that was like a cautionary tale. That's some Lolita stuff. <laughs> yeah. The Strigas would also feast on children in the night. But they also preyed on adults, so no one was safe. <laughs> but the real common vampire folklore 
comes from medieval and Eastern European. Dracula? Are we in Dracula? Of course we're going to get into Dracula. Cool. So (laughs) there's a couple different ideas of the original vampires. There's, of course, Vlad the Impaler, also known as Vlad Dracula, who was born in Transylvania, had a habit of staking people. You know, how else was he going to get rid of the Ottoman Empire? That story's actually wild. Yeah, apparently he enjoyed dining amidst his dying victims and dipping his bread in their blood. Ugh. So we don't know if that's true. Gross. Is that wild? That's so gross. <laughs> you get so sick like that. Well, there's so also. <laughs> now, there's also this story I found from the 1800s about Mercy Brown. And I had never heard the story before, but it's fascinating. Okay. So, Rhode Island. 1892, a bunch of people were dying of consumption. You know, it went around a lot. I love that's what they call tuberculosis. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, Mary Brown dying. And then their eldest daughter, who was also Mary, died. And then Mercy and the younger son, Edwin, were also sick. So, Mercy dies. Which is sad. But they're like, ah, someone, one of these dead people came back to life as a vampire and got the sun sick. Yes, because that's how tuberculosis works. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Apparently this was a thing where if there were multiple deaths in one family, they're just like, ah, the undead. Not contagious disease and they were all in the same household? Exactly. Cool. So, George Brown... They're like, George, let us dig up the dead members of your family to figure out which one of them is killing the others. And he's like, fine. So, March 17th, 1892, they start digging up dead bodies. The wife Mary and the daughter Mary were both, you know, decomposing. So they're like, yeah, that's probably, they're probably dead. Just normal. But when they dug up the corpse of Mercy... She wasn't decomposed at all. She I'm still not gonna had like this, am I? She still had blood in her heart. Now, if we think about this logically, it's probably the fact that she had been stored in a freezer-like above-ground crypt during the New England winter for two months. So that probably messed up the de- the decomposition process. Why was she stored above ground for two months before they buried her? Probably because they thought she was a vampire. <sighs> They're like, listen, we're gonna have to do- <laughs> I'm just imagining there's like a town meeting and they're like, alright, listen, we're gonna have to c- dig them up eventually. So let's just make this one easier. <laughs> <sighs> I can't with old Timmy. Logic. (laughs) But they see this non-decomposed corpse and they're like, yeah, she definitely got Edwin sick. So, they decided that the best way to deal with this was they took her heart and liver from her dead body and they burned them. I don't like this. And then they took the ashes and mixed them with water to create a tonic. And then they gave it to poor No, they did it. <laughs> yes, they made poor sick Edwin drink it. And what? They're, like, they're like, it'll cure you and it'll stop the influence of the undead. What? He died two months later, poor thing. Of course he did. You made him drink his sister's burn <laughs> liver and her. I'm, I'm uh, making a lot of noises, I know. <laughs> So that was another big vampire story. And our conversation's gonna be about deaths from 911. We keep doing this to ourselves. <laughs> We're gonna go through 
some potential reasons for why people thought there were so many vampires around. So one, they just straight up didn't know much about dead bodies. <laughs> so, for instance, they would, Science. yeah, they would bury their dead, and then classic cases of decomposition would happen, in which case, like, the moisture would seep out, so like the skin shrivels up a bit, so it looks like the hair and nails are longer. When really it's just the, you know the skin retreating, mm -hmm. and they're like, yeah, that's messed up. That's something growing. And also, as the corpses like there's bacteria produce gas in the torso, it'll cause the body to bloat, which would cause the body to look quote plump, well fed. And they're like, yeah, they're definitely eating something. And this same Bloating can also cause blood to seep out of the mouth. So then they're like, well, we know what they're eating. Blood. Next question. <laughs> People are funny. I know. Oh, and this also sometimes makes noises, like death groans. So people are like, yeah, that's a, that's a living thing. Other times, they just straight up didn't know when the person was dead, so they would bury them alive, and that's messed up. Didn't they used to bury people with, like, a string to a bell, and so they'd, like, ring the bell if they woke up? <laughs> I remember reading there was- yeah. There's, like, with some disease where people sometimes died, and sometimes they just, like, fell asleep for three days, and- so they would give them a bell. <laughs> Casual. Yeah. <laughs> when the bubonic plague was happening, it would also sometimes cause a breakdown of lung tissue, which would make blood appear at the lips, and they're like, yeah, disease, vampire, sounds about right. They blame the bu bubonic plague on everything, except for the fact that they like went to the bathroom in the streets. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like... You can find evidence that they blamed it on everything but hygiene. <laughs> Could it be the fact that our city is absolutely disgusting? No, it must Gotta be, be the, the vampires. <laughs> or the Jews. <laughs> you know the only people who take ritual baths and so they're getting less sick? Must be them. Oh, so for a hot minute, they were like, there's this disease called porphyria which is this rare blood disorder, and they're like, maybe that caused the vampire superstition. But the other people were like, no. <laughs> but <laughs> this uh, disease is basically like, if there's too much sunlight, people get a rash, and there's an idea that maybe if you drink blood, it'll help with the blood. <laughs> It'll I help fix their blood. I think and then, it's iron that they're deficient in, and there was a while where they were getting people to drink blood for like the iron content. Yeah. Anyway, so this scientist named Dolphin went on and talked about this, and then a bunch of other experts said that sounds fake. <laughs> uh, scientists are mean to each other sometimes. Yep. So Dolphin disputed. <clears throat> Oh, sometimes rabies would be, they're like, well, I don't know what that is, so vampires. <laughs> Honestly, that one's fair. That one I understand. Oh, rabies is messed up. Rabies is messed up and like people act weird and they like foam with the mouth and I'm like, yeah, that's fair. I would think that was a vampire too if I was in like the middle ages. Mm -hmm. Oh, the vampire bat thing is actually more recent. Because the only vampire bats are in Latin America, and as we all know, it took a while for Europeans to figure out that that was there. But once they did figure that out, it became such a dominant part of the you know, vampire mythos that it got into Dracula, and then it was canon. The other day I had to explain to someone from India that the reason we call Native Americans Indians is because like, the explorers were thought that didn't know that this continent was here so they thought they could sail from the other way around the world to India and so they thought when they hit land they were in India and so the people they met they called Indians and now it's been like a long ass time and we are here yep 
All right, have you ever wanted to know how to identify a vampire, Sam? Don't they sparkle? Oh, <laughs> that's one way. <laughs> I made myself laugh. <laughs> so a different method was to lead a virgin boy through a graveyard on a virgin stallion and the horse would balk at the grave of the vampire. <laughs> now, usually it was a black horse, but in Albania it had to be a white horse. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> How did you not know that? Of course. <laughs> you know that some, like, 16-year-old boy was like, I'm not a virgin, and they were like, yes, you are, get on the horse. <laughs> Stop lying, Jeffrey. Your hand doesn't count, let's go. <laughs> Some protection against vampires. Garlic, that's in Dracula, and therefore is canon. But sometimes you got wild rose, hawthorn, mustard seeds. Also, you know, Dracula had all that Christian imagery, so crucifix, rosary, holy water. Sometimes they can't walk on consecrated ground. Sometimes they can't cross holy water. The power of Christ compels you. Exactly. One thing is that there's another part of the legend where they can't see their own reflection. Now, this it's could like be- making your hair really hard. Oh, yeah. Now, this could either be because they don't have a soul and it's a physical representation of that. Or it could go back to them being weak to silver and old timey mirrors were made out of, were had like a layer of silver in the back to be reflective. I thought weak to silver was werewolves. Oh, any, any mythological creature can be weak to any metal if you want them to be. Cool. Did they ever establish in Twilight canon whether or not they could walk in a churchyard? I'm pretty sure they could. Cool, cool. Just check. Yeah, the, the only mythos that seemed to be real in Twilight was <laughs> Native American. <laughs> but you know what? It's a first for anything. I know. Right? <laughs> you know what the real mythos was there? The friends we made along the way. I was going to say vampires suck, which we also watched <laughs> in that same week. <laughs> we had to. For anyone who doesn't remember, Vampire Suck is the like mid-2000s parody movie you know that time when like scary movie was a thing and they were making all those parody movies <laughs> it was the twilight parody movie and it was better than twilight <laughs> it was hysterical <laughs> at one point <laughs> bella bleeds or fake bella bleeds into like <laughs> tower of wine glasses I forgot about that part. I was thinking about the part where he like starts sparkling and like it's just like a rave so no one notices. <laughs> yeah, that movie is better than Twilight. <laughs> also, there's sometimes where vampires can't enter a house unless invited. And even that varies. Sometimes it's you can rescind the invitation. Other times, they can, once you let them in, they can just come and go as they please. That's on you. You know, black-eyed children also can't come in unless invited. Really? Yes. Terrifying. <laughs> Vampires were typically regarded as more active at night, but it was more of a later thing where they were considered actually vulnerable to sunlight. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, they sparkle. Oh my god. <laughs> You're done with me. <laughs> For all your anger about Twilight at the beginning of this. <laughs> you brought up vampires. I'm the trying only... to give you a comprehensive breakdown. The only vampire experience we have shared was you making me watch all the Twilight movies, and now I am making you suffer for it. I am alive and it is now everyone's problem. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. So let's end this off with various ways to destroy vampires. You rip them limb from limb by other vampires, right? Yep, yeah, that's actually one way. I'm just here for Twilight lore at this point, you guys. Oh my god. 
So most common, staking them, you know, with a wooden stake through the heart. Now this came from the tradition of, you know, they would like dig up a grave and be like, yeah, that thing has definitely been moving. So they would stab it so that it would stay in the grave where it belongs, which later evolved into just, just stab it at all. So, <laughs> uh, but they had a lot of opinions about what kind of wood was best for this. In Russia and the Baltics, it was ash. In Serbia, it was hawthorn. Sometimes they used aspen because that was like what Jesus's cross is made out of. I don't know. I'm Jewish. <laughs> I feel like a nice cherry wood would be good for this. Yeah. <laughs> and usually they stabbed them through the heart. But sometimes in Russia and northern Germany, they're like, yeah, let's do it in the mouth. And in Serbia, they were just like the stomach. Why the mouth? That's where they drink the blood from. Okay, that actually makes some sense. Take that. I was like, that's not even a good way to like kill someone. They're already dead, Sam. But they think that they're killing them again. See, they would also sometimes pierce the skin of the chest because to like deflate it because you know they had all that gas from decomposition and that's like, really bad for someone to inhale I'm, I'm sure it is oh but a classic was decapitation all right that works almost every time did they use a guillotine <laughs> <laughs> now especially in germany and slavic areas they were like, all right, well, let's preemptively decapitate this body. <laughs> and then they would bury the head either between the feet, just away from the body, or behind the buttocks. That's just rude. That is just rude. <laughs> so they're like, all right, this is probably making the soul depart faster so that it's not sticking around in the corpse. But also, that's so messed up. I feel like that's pissing off the soul. You're gonna make some ghosts that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Romani people would stab steel or iron needles into a corpse's heart just to just to keep it down. <laughs> Sometimes there was pouring boiling water over the grave or complete incineration of the body. Now, this one actually sounds like it could, you know, kill off some germs. Yeah. So Birdie bodies is a good way to deal with infectious diseases. Oh, kudos. Let's see. In the Balkans, you could also kill a vampire by shooting or drowning them, which just sounds like killing a murder. normal person. That just sounds like murder. <laughs> That's called someone wanted to murder someone, and they were like, oh, he was a vampire. <laughs> also, repeating the funeral service, so they're like, maybe it didn't take the first time. <laughs> People had a lot of free time before television. I know. Oh, wait, wait, wait. In Romania. So sometimes they would place garlic in the mouth, which, like, that has a basis in vampire folklore. But other times they would take the precaution of, as recently as the 19th century, shooting a bullet through the coffin. You know what? Whatever helps you sleep at night. They're like, alright. Before we put this thing in the ground, let's make sure it's really dead. Obviously, Freud had opinions on vampires, but we hate him, so we're not going to get into that. Cool. But Did you, you know ever who... read that Freud book? I, I have not. I still have it, though. I need to read that. <laughs> You're like one souvenir from LA. I got a book about a girl who I think falls in love with the reincarnation of Freud. I took her to this like famous bookstore in LA and she was like, I'm gonna find the weirdest book in here and she brought me back <laughs> a story of a girl who like was going through some life issues and meets a bartender who she later discovers is Freud. <laughs> and this is like modern day. I said I was gonna find the weirdest book in that store and I succeeded. <laughs> like I think I was like looking at their mythology books while you did that. <laughs> I had a goal. I accomplished it. But you know who is slightly better than Freud is Voltaire. So 
Yeah, Voltaire was like, hey, you know how the mid-18th century is coinciding with the decline of folkloric beliefs in the existence of vampires, but that now, quote, there were stock jobbers, brokers, and men of business who sucked the blood of the people in broad daylight. They were not the dead, though corrupted. These true suckers lived not in cemeteries, but in very agreeable places. You know, you work in corporate America now. Like, I don't think you can say stuff like that anymore. What if it, Vol it was Voltaire who said it? I know, but I know that you're like feeling it. And I just need to remind you that you work in corporate America now. <laughs> what if the true vampires were the capitalists we, we met along the way? <laughs> you can't say like, stuff like that as I take a sip of water. That's just mean. <laughs> All right. There's well, water in my nose now. <laughs> I think that's a good... Seems like a good place to stop. <laughs> I feel like I need to make a Twilight reference. <laughs> You've made enough. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're gonna go so that Ellen can kill me offline. <laughs> if you would like to follow us on Instagram, it's at Chaos Podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at underscore Chaos Podcast. You can shoot us an email at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com to just like tell us what you're thinking or feeling. We yeah, just want to hear from you. If you live in Brussels. If you live in Brussels, definitely we, do. We really want to hear. Uh, we also take all those things in the form of five star app podcast reviews, which like, please send those. <laughs> we really appreciate it. It's upsetting enough. Yeah, yeah, that, that was pretty sad. Cool. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed the chaos. <laughs> Safe travels. <laughs>